Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 5, Shut Up, Dr. Phil. Let's get this show on the road. This week, we'd like to start off by shouting out The Creature 165432 and Tokyo Girl 101 for the lovely reviews that they left us on Apple Podcasts. As you guys probably know by now, those reviews really, really help us. Uh, they make sure that like people find us because Apple Podcasts really, really likes it when people write reviews for podcasts. And they prioritize those podcasts that have more reviews. So please, please, if you have some time, we really appreciate the reviews, and they really do help us a lot. And while they help, we also just love them. Like it is just such a highlight. Like I don't want to under I don't want to underplay it. Like obviously, it helps us in a in a big way on the on the podcasting discovery side. But like it's also like one of the like brightest like points in my week is when I get to see a new one pop up. Absolutely, we share them and we gush about them. So yeah, if you want to make us really really happy and make the carrying wayward chat happy, I guess. Take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much, everyone. The title of this episode, <laughs> I'm sitting there for so long trying to be like, what is the title? And then like, it's like the last like two minutes of the episode vaguely, like like the second to last big scene. And it's like, ah, clicks completely. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of like a full, full circle moment at the end. One of like the funniest things I've done to myself in the show in a while which is the, I try, it, 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 you know, I don't try to do it, but I feel like I don't do it often. I don't really pay attention to the opening credits in case there is an interesting guest star or a character is returning. But I happened to catch one. So I had one person in mind the entire time, and it was Charisma Carpenter. And I was like, oh my god, I'm a Buffy fan. Everyone knows that we're both Buffy fans. I'm so happy to have them. And then, like, legitimately, I was so, like, focused on like when are we gonna get charisma i didn't notice james martin first like <laughs> minute he was on screen i'm just like oh my god so like this guy seems really and there was like he said something where like something in his tone of voice shifted just enough that had me go like i know that voice even if it isn't being british you recognize the voice more than the actor that's really funny oh my goodness like, what a fun, like, again, just one of those, like, you know what you're doing moments. Like, there is there is a 0% chance this was done by accident. This was like a little ode to, to Buffy, which was really cool. I had it in my mind that this is an episode that people don't like in the fandom. So I sort of asked our Discord server, I'm like, hey, like, am I, am I making this up in my mind? Or is it like an episode that people don't love? And a lot of the responses that I got were like, well, I never watched Buffy. And so it didn't mean all that much to me. And so I feel like because there were probably so many listeners who didn't really watch Buffy, like, I guess the fandoms like overlapped, but they weren't a full circle kind of thing. Like there were still a lot of people who just didn't like for them, James Marsters and Charisma Car Carpenter were probably like, just not that much of a big deal, which I can understand. So I'm sure there's people who like recognize the names, but weren't Buffy people. So it didn't really click the same way. And then I'm sure there's people who were just like, oh, they're from a thing. I don't know. Hold on. What did you think about it before you recap? It felt campy. 
Yes, very, 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 very. The the big reveal that they were both witches and they're both kind of like using their powers to get back at each other. And there's kind of a going back and forth history with the two of them just felt very like caricature like of witches we've seen in the series where it's like they're using it for like petty revenge. But for them, petty revenge does involve literal murder. But like it isn't some grand like evil scheme to raise the devil or like, you know, bring about the end of the world. It's just it's it's a lover's quarrel. With people whose powers are a bit, you know, much. Right. I completely agree with you. And and I think that, again, this is really seen in the end scene when he goes like, I told you nothing happened with the Medici chick. You know, like it's it's kind of like and, and it's funny because we've seen uh, witch episodes before and we've seen particularly I'm thinking about the the provenance um episode where like we see paintings magic and paintings right and that felt scary right like that was kind of like ooh, you know like there's a haunted painting but here it just kind of felt funny like the paintings like melting you know like the tone is so completely different to the the previous witch episodes that we've seen and to like the provenance episode so it just kind of feels like it, it is a tonal shift that's I think some people find hard to stomach. Like I'm kind of one of those people. And as much as, and again, like I keep saying, I'm like, I love camp. I really do. But I just find that this going from serious to camp is is a bit challenging for me. Well, I think that camp itself can kind of go both ways. You can be campy, but still be serious. And then you can be campy and like play into it a little too much. Like here, I felt it very much was an episode that was aimed at being funny more so than being, you know, like a serious, like it was designed to feel serious. And it was only when we got the reveal that, oh, this is kind of not what we expected. We're kind of having the rug pull up underneath us. Does the campy aspect come through? I don't think it's necessarily, you have to be one or the other. It's basically the shift from seasons one through five to now is kind of like hitting me. No, I agree completely. There is definitely a shift from the, the, Kripke era to the post-Kripke era we are currently in. And, and keep in mind that like season six also had some very campy episodes, but I found that they did it really well. Like it was really well done. I have issues with the way that this is handled in season seven. Like it feels satirical almost. I was going to argue for a second that last episode felt like as much as like he was a very campy character, our villain of the week. I didn't feel the episode itself was as comedic. It was a much heavier episode, despite having a very campy villain, versus this week, which is a very campy villain pair, who are much more played for comedy in the end, uh, even though the comedy does kind of fall on Dean and Sam a little bit towards the end of their like conversation. But I think you're right. I think there is sort of a shift now where like it, it feels like they're trying to be funny, but they're going too far sometimes and making the joke the whole episode versus just having a good laugh in an otherwise great episode. That being said, I still kind of love this episode in a, in a weird way, but I think I love it for being so bizarre, not because it fit well. Yeah. I think overall, like this is not, this is an episode that I watch. Like it's not a skip for me. I don't generally skip it when I'm watching through. So I mean, what am I complaining about? Right? Like, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe I'm just being a hater. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm just being a hater. <laughs> Hey, we're allowed to. How about you give us a recap in three, two, one, Buffy. We <laughs> we have some classic witchy antics going on. The brothers are on the case. We've got 
weird deaths, unexplained, some weird things at the site. Oh, this is just having every, you know, like, sign of a witch. Dean even notices the dying plants, which is another witchy thing we've seen before. This is falling into place. They have some funny fungals with Bobby, which I think were a little weird and I wanted to get into a second, but we'll deal with that. We then finally figure out, oh, the witch is clearly his ex-wife and she's doing all this to get revenge because he cheated. And then it turns out he's a witch and he's getting revenge because he's petty. And they're both just petty and having a lover's quarrel, as I said. And it results in a magical slapping fight over Sam and Dean as they basically play therapist to the two of them and make them realize that it's not that bad. Uh, and then, surprise, a Leviathan shows up at the last second, but gets knocked out by uh, one of the witches who is there to save their butts, because even though they saved their relationship, eh, they're still petty, and magic, and time. I literally thought you were going to say gets, like, you know, stopped by Spike, because, like, the, I was <laughs> genuinely kind of waiting for that. I almost did. There was a moment where I was like, the hell was his name again? Damn it. I don't want to say James Marsters or Spike. I'm just going to say one of them. You had the opportunity to do the funniest thing. <laughs> this episode was written by Brad Buckner and Eugenie Ross Lemming, directed by Phil Scritchia, and originally aired on October 21st, 2011. And in critical time, we will be talking about the writing team that is Brad Buckner and Eugenie Ross Lemming. I know I've seen the names, but that's all I've got right now, so you'll have to remind me then. So Dean is having nightmares. He's having nightmares about Cass dying, about Sam's mental health, and also about killing Amy. Again, given that we're kind of have this two-episode arc right now that is very much about Dean's guilt and kind of holding things in, I feel like it's, they're weirdly out of place. Like, one is very clearly his fault, and I guess he's feeling responsible for the other two, even though they're not his fault. But again, I think that kind of all falls into last week's discussion of Dean being unable to give up that feeling. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, the, for sure, there are two that are not his fault, one that absolutely is. But I don't, I'm not sure that he's able to make the difference between those three things or, or, or like those two things of, be, of being directly responsible for something and being indirectly involved in something else. So, yeah, I think he feels guilt for, for all of it. He is also drinking a lot and often, and in this episode, we see that he's falling asleep drinking beer, and he wakes up to drink some whiskey. We also see him drinking in the middle of the day from a flask. Early season seven was kind of subtle, of like, oh, there's just more cans around, or he just had to go to a liquor store this time, to like, now it's like they're really kind of doing that thing where they're like, we want to make very clear we have a point to make here, so let's have Sam call it out with the flask, and let's have it be very blunt. This is not the last time that we were going to get a character called Jenny Klein on this show, which is a very weird nickel to have twice. What's even weirder is, I feel like we already had a Jenny Klein. Am I like... We have not had a Jenny Klein, but we have had a Jenny. The brothers managed to bag a Leviathan, and they plan to bring it to Bobby's. I am so excited for this because I really want to know how that's going to play out. Like, I'm so intrigued. Like, the devil's trap to our understanding does not work, so if it wakes up in the trunk, it's getting out, uh, and likely taking the car with it, which is a terrible concept. If they do make it to Bobby's, I'm assuming they will, how are they going to restrain it? Like, do they have, like, a, okay, here's, like, 40 things we think might work. Let's try all and see which ones hold and hope one of them does. Like, I'm very excited for this next episode, if only to see this. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think this is I yeah, you saw like you saw that coming a mile away. 
there will be um, some testing happening in the next episode. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I noticed that this season, uh, Sam is often like depicted with like red lighting in the background. And we see that very clearly in this episode. Um, at the end, when him and Dean are talking near the Impala, like as they're leaving the motel. And I think... I think personally that it has to do with him having flashbacks from hell, like a visual reminder that this is like what's in, in his head. Oh, I love that. That is like such a nice like touch because I was going to say like kind of just as an, an overarching thought is that we really haven't seen much of the flashbacks and the hell leaking through. And it was kind of left on a very like unresolved point. Like I understand he's maybe dealing with it better, Maybe we'll learn more about it. This is one of those like soulless Sam things where in like three episodes I'll retroactively go like, oh, this has been happening the whole time. Yeah, there you go. I think the whole goal of that is to kind of put that on the back burner because right now we've got to deal with Dean, right? Like we've got to deal with this and then we'll come back to it eventually. Yep, because Sam can't be good for too long. Oh, oh, Sammy. <laughs> Our theme this week is withholding, and it's a combination of two words, right? With and hold. With being a word from Old English that means like against, opposite, from, toward, by, near, like it to kind of depict all of those things. And then we have hold, also from Old English, which can mean like a variety of different things. So we're going to focus on the ones that I think are most relevant here. And I kind of liked the idea of like to contain, uh, to possess, to control, to rule, but also to detain and to lock up. And I think that this episode, I like the idea of withholding as being like the action of holding something back, like to keep your thoughts locked up, so to speak. Because there's like a clear mirroring of the Starks and the Winchesters in this episode. And both families are withholding stuff from each other. I, I think it's made even more clear because Sam points it out at the end. To me, this had like, you know, those early season feels when they were every single time that there was like a conflict on screen that wasn't related to the Winchesters. It was actually about the Winchesters all along, you know, like this was very, very clear, but it just kind of lacked the subtlety that we had like in early seasons. Like, like you said, Sam calls it out like openly in this episode. So it didn't feel out of place for the episode, which is a weird thing to say. And I feel like it's not the first time we're seeing them like clearly drawing the line for us, but I think it just adds to Sam's everything this week. You know, that's an interesting way to look at it. I have trouble not looking at it critically and just to think that this is like a lack of sophistication in the writing personally. And we, cause we've seen it before and I've kind of always thought that, but like when it's called out openly, I'm like, okay, well like, you know, that's, that's our job. We can do that. You don't need to do that. All right, so let's start with Dean this week, because Dean, again, uh, is the poster child for our theme, because he's the one withholding the truth from Sam. You know, the issue is that by keeping this big secret that he's keeping, he's creating those situations where he has to lie even more, and then he has to lie even more, and then even more often, like in order just to be able to keep the secret. And that kind of creates like this mountain of lies that he's just now having to keep on top of. Um, you know, clearly Sam can see right through it. And we're going to talk about that or at least how that affects him in a moment. But 
it's creating a rift between them. Yeah, with Dean withholding not just his feelings and his anger from Sam, and we've seen this season, you know, with Bobby, how often he would often make fun of the I'm fine moments. He's preventing himself from feeling peace. And we as an audience can see how letting go and allowing yourself to be heard and getting out of benefiting Sam. But despite seeing a clear example of his workings, Dean's without peace for himself. And he is just like withholding is such a clearly good term. And it's such like a, a like, like I want to keep using the term over and over again, because he really is not just withholding information from his brother and from the people who care about him, but he's withholding from himself peace and, you know, like peace of mind and freedom. Ooh, I really like that actually. How do you think it would go if he were to tell Sam? I have a really weird thought about this one, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I, I think the big number one thing is that obviously the fear is how Sam would react. But I think there's a part of Dean that also fears Sam accepting it. Okay. Because I feel like that would put him under like a new layer of like guilt. I hid this from you and I did this terrible thing, which you should be angry about, but you are choosing to look the other way and forgive me and be understanding of it as much as it should hurt you. The obvious reaction is the, oh, you went behind my back. Like, yeah, it, what you we all expect. But I think there's a part of Dean that is seeing this new peaceful Sam, this Sam who's more understanding and able to almost more intelligently work through things like this before being as reactionary. And I think Dean is truly afraid of what happens if he is understanding and we then continue to work through this. Like, is it a road I want to walk down right now? Do you think he's afraid that like, this is a Lucifer thing where he's like not really caring about it or less. So I, I think it's more of a, the example I think of is the, you see it all of like sitcoms where it's like the admitting to something you did wrong and the parent being like, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. And like, it's almost like, I wish you would just yell at me and be mad because then we can get past this and it would be over. But if you accept this and explain how you're feeling to me, we then have to work through this. And I then have to like, you know, it's not just, okay, you got mad, you punched me, fight's over, we can go back to normal, everything's done. It's the, there is something lingering, there's more of a conversation to be had, there's growth to be had. And I think there is a fear that while he knows the killing Amy thing is truly the core problem here, the other things he feels guilty for, which we kind of know he's not guilty of, uh, i.e. Cass dying and Sam's... Um, you know, hallucinations, he's going to have to start reeling with those things. And he's afraid of walking down those paths and seeing an end result where he truly gets told by someone he trusts. Yes, it's your fault. Okay. So like, this is like more displaced anxiety. Like it's easier to be anxious about something that, you know, you caused than about something that you have no control over kind of thing. Cause that's it. Yes. There's always a chance that something comes up and he can suddenly like it's wiped from his plate. Like, Oh, we find out that Amy actually had a horrible kill record and he should have gotten done away with her in the first place. And like, okay, woof, this is all over and I was in the right. But admitting to it and having to deal with the consequences, especially if they're rational consequences, not just an outburst of anger, 
are scarier than the what if. All right. Well, I'm going to tell you, we're going to find out how that happens. Um, so we just need to hold our breath for a little bit. Uh, and, and we're going to find out actually quite shortly. I'm very excited for that. I really, I genuinely want to see how that reaction goes. Another thing that's going on with Dean, because he's keeping the secret that um, is that he's having nightmares, as we talked about in the long game. But what I find interesting about these nightmares is that there's like visions of Cass dying and Sam like shooting into the air. And we both know that these were like deeply, deeply traumatic to Dean. And these memories are side by side with those of Dean killing Amy, which to me are kind of signaling that like killing her was actually traumatic for him too, even though he's kind of explaining it away as like just killing another monster. And I think that my question here about Dean in this episode is like, what's hurting him the most? Is it the memory of killing Amy in secret from Sam or withholding the information from Sam? So I think this does tie into your last question. And I really think it's the withholding it from Sam part that's getting to him. Because in the end, he is, like you said, he's rationalized killing a monster. But he has not rationalized betraying his brother. I would usually agree with you, but the way that the things are showed in, like I said, like because of what they're showing, because if it was, if it was lying to Sam that was traumatic, then they would show him lying to Sam in his nightmares, right? But he's actually seeing the death of Amy or his murder of Amy, to be more precise. And so I'm like, I feel like maybe the the murdering, you know, was was also traumatic for him. I see it more as these three actions are being equated to people's suffering that he feels directly responsible for. Yes, well, I, I, definitely the trauma of I murdered someone who in cold blood may have been a perfectly normal person in the end and in front of their own child, which they never obviously show that part. But like for me, it's always lingering in my mind, even though you said it never comes up, which I expect at this point i think the side by side of a cold-blooded murder and seeing someone he loves die and someone he cares so much about like losing themselves he's equating these all as like losing something and i think with amy it's more of the like losing his way almost and I mean, like we said, he is drinking a lot more, you know, like we mentioned that before. But I think it's really important to, to talk about it here because like Dean is in pain, right? Like I, we both agree on that. <laughs> we can't take that away. Like, and when Dean is in pain, like he reaches for alcohol. Sam is noticing it and he is making the very clear connections and he's not being quiet about it. He's calling him out on it in this episode, like I said before with the flask. He's making sure that Dean knows he can see it and calling him out. And clearly he's not appreciating it being observed in this way. And I almost kind of equate it to, like I said earlier, Bobby's, um, oh, you're fine comments. Yeah, of exactly. Of like the, we all know you're not okay, but you don't want to talk about it. But we're going to make sure you know we see it. Which I think is their way of saying like, I'm here for it though. 
this is like the absolute curse of being perceived, you know, like I think Dean is being perceived and he doesn't like it. And I think, you know, there are ways in which being perceived is not the end of the world, but it's annoying. But here it's particularly painful for Dean because he's being perceived like at his worst. People are noticing his pain, which he doesn't want to share. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. However, he does not want to do that at the moment. And so he, I think he feels like he's losing control even of like what he can, like what he chooses to share because his pain is so loud that everybody can see it. Which I think is just forcing him to want to hold on to it and hide it even more. Exactly. Withhold it, one might say. Exactly. To maintain <laughs> some sense of control. Oh, Steve. <laughs> it had been a while that we hadn't done that. But yeah, it's like, been a while Dean? since we had a moment like that. But Dean's really been like, you had the sympathies this week. Dean's been hurting. I love how like two episodes ago we were like, Dean fucked up. And now we're like, oh, Dean fucked up. The more I think about the killing Amy thing, and the more it becomes like part of the arc of this season, more than just a one-off kill, the more I'm becoming not accepting of it or understanding of it, but like I'm seeing its point in the story as not just a ice cold killing for killing's sake, but a unfortunate tool used to grow the character in some way that we're going to hopefully get a payoff for down the road. Right, so if anybody who's listening to this has listened to the episode of Monster of the Week, uh, where th the recap episode for the Winchesters, on which I was a guest, it came out about a little bit over a month ago. I talk about how watching the Winchesters has really informed how I look, particularly at these choices that Dean makes in, in these seasons that we're going through right now. And um, and this is one of the things that the I found that the Winchesters really helped me understand better. Go have a listen if you want a bit more context about that, because I can't share too much with Drew here. But you know, <laughs> I was about to joke like, "Oh, go listen to it." Clearly no, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, in a few years you can do that. But yeah, for anybody else, uh, you can definitely go have a listen. Sam. So again, in this episode, he's on the receiving end, right? Like he's dealing with Dean's refusal to tell him the truth. This isn't the first time that we sort of see that, right? Like we saw it already with like the big secret that John told Dean at the beginning of season two. But here we're dealing with Dean not wanting to tell him about Amy. And it's, I mean, it is affecting him the same way that it was in season two. And, and with reason, Right? Like when the person that you spend the most time with is holding something back from you. I mean, I don't know about you, but it really affects me. And I start like overanalyzing everything and I wonder if it's in my head or not. And like, I wonder also like why it is that they feel like they can't speak to me about it. And I can only imagine that Sam in his, I, I sort of hate to put it that way, but like in his fragile state is probably, like, ruminating all this even more. I mean, fragile state or not, it's definitely something that's going to linger with him, but you then add the extra layer of hell memories leaking through and Lucifer potentially fucking with his head, it's only going to make it worse. Because, despite all of that, he seems to have turned over this new leaf in his outlook on life and seems to be weirdly at peace in a way we never really seen him. Like, maybe, like... 
pre-Jess's death in episode one piece. And he's now trying to extend those same compassions he's allowed himself to Dean. But Dean just won't open up and... You you can't help but feel for Sam that it must hurt to have the person you trust the most block you out emotionally after you were finally able to open to them. You know, you have all this time where... Sure, I don't think Dean was ever asking Sam to open up to him, although he kind of does from time to time, especially when it's, hey, what's wrong? So here Sam is going, yeah, I'm feeling better. I have figured some stuff out. I'm in a good place. How about you? Blah, talk to the hand. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think that we see that at the end of the episode when they're talking and like Sam is like literally trying to coax the secret out of Dean and Dean's just not having it, you know, like... I don't know why, but all I can think about is like Arrested Development. Like Job's not on board. Like Dean's not on board <laughs> with this at all. Like Sam goes, we're good, right? Because he's like, it, like, is it me? Is the big problem that you're having right now about me? Like, it's not, right? We, we know that it's not, but Sam doesn't know that it's not. And I know that when I'm in those situations, I'm always like, oh, it's me. I'm the problem. Like, 100%. The the issue that's going on with them is about me. And, like, I don't know if that's vain or self-centered or whatever, but that's just the way that I react. And so I'm imagining that Sam would react at least in a similar way. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I believe the term you're looking for is human. That is a human thing that humans do. I refuse to believe not everyone does it because God knows I do. We'll talk about that in my reflections this week. But this moment, I think like, this is the most important moment for Sam this week. Because this is the moment where Sam feels defeated. You know, he's realizing that Dean may not open up to him the same way he wants to open up himself. And in that moment, he reaches one last time to what is what it is he's truly after. And it's the, like, am I the problem? Because this is the first time since we've seen Sam come about this new outlook on his life that he's begun to doubt himself. He's beginning to feel guilt as... It might be about him, that he might be the problem in this whole equation. Oh, poor Sam. He's also going through it. Did you notice that moment when Sam and Dean, like, they run into Jenny's apartment and Dean immediately goes to her and Sam immediately starts looking for the coin? Because I really loved this moment because it shows us two things. The first being that even though Sam is not well mentally, Dean still trusts him. And the second thing is that even though Sam and Dean are like more and more at odds as like the episode advances with, with Dean withholding that secret, they're still perfectly able to work together. And I didn't bring this up in the long game because I didn't think it ever made it on the podcast. I, but I'm pretty sure that this is a dynamic that we've seen before where Dean does the carrying and Sam does the fighting. I And I think that we may have talked about this during the live watch of Let It Bleed a few months ago. I think that's where we talked about it. Yeah, I think we need to watch out for that particular dynamic of Dean doing the carrying and Sam doing the fighting. This gives me so much hope for them. Because despite previous comments about a rift forming between them as Sam begins to doubt himself because of Dean's withholding information, thinking he's the problem. We see that in this, a moment of immediate action in a moment of like just fight or flight type response, the two can work together so well. And I think this just goes to show that on some deeper level, instinctually they understand each other and the situation around them. And while they may have, 
interpersonal miscommunications temporarily that on the deepest, most like naturalistic level, they know how to handle themselves and a situation and each other's strengths. The foundation is there, right? Like they've been doing this their entire lives. So, and the coin was on a really high shelf. Of course you needed Sam to find it. (laughs) Yes, of course. I, I've never been to therapy before. I don't really think it's for me. Well, it wasn't for me. I'm here now. I guess I just kind of got to be frank with you. I kill things for a living. Well, no one really pays me. I pick up odd jobs and accept money as thanks sometimes for the killing. I begin to pace. The idea of sitting or lying in one of those dorky lounge chairs is just a step too cliche for me. So, you're just gonna believe me. Okay, fine. You know vampires? I've staked them. Werewolves? I have like 12 different guys to get silver bullets from. I've choked out chupacabras, wrestled a Bigfoot. I once saw the Loch Ness Monster. She was actually pretty cool. I'm not making this up. I can be back here in less than an hour with something that would change your world for the worst. Why do I care? Because if you don't believe me, how am I supposed to trust you to believe anything I say? You want me to talk to you and get crap off my chest, and I'm just supposed to tell you all of my darkest secrets when deep down I doubt you're taking me seriously at all? If I'm going to take the time to fill you in on who I am, you got to be ready for all of it. Yeah, I don't have many people to tell this to. That's why I came to you. I figure you shrinks are, like, supposed to be good at this listening thing. I stop and fall to the couch, my head in my hands. It's not easy dropping this kind of info on someone. Folks, folks usually run. I, uh, no, I haven't told many people. I don't often try this with folks who aren't, you know, already in on this whole stuff or... Why would I? It would scare them off. No, I don't know that for certain, but like, you can imagine. Look, you're an exception. I'm paying you, aren't I? I mean, I will after the session, I guess. Yeah, I guess I can't know that for a fact, but... Yeah, I mean, you're technically right. I don't know until I try, but... I mean, how would someone normal react to finding out they have a ghost haunting their office, and I'm here to find their missing treasure to burn it so I can send their spirit away? Oh, on that note, you don't happen to have the prized possession of some 16th century countess lying around, do you? I would like to briefly discuss the writing team for this episode. Now, as a reminder, this episode was written by Brad Buckner and Eugenie Ross-Lemming, a team that's going to come to be known as the portmanteau name Buck-Lemming. I... I do want to mention here that Eugenie is married to Robert Singer, who is a writer, director, producer, executive producer, and co-showrunner on Supernatural, like literally from the very beginning. So Brad Buckner and Eugenie Ross Lemming were part of the original writing team on the show in season one. You might remember their one single episode so far, Route 666. And yes, that is the racist truck episode. 
well, they're back on their bullshit with this episode. As And this is supposed to be like their great comeback. They're going to be writing about three to five episodes each, each season from now until season 15. And so we're going to need to buckle up. I'm going to give you a hint that a couple of their recurring themes, like the first one being how much they love Lucifer and Mark Pellegrino. Uh, they also really like to write about the lengths to which Sam and Dean are going to go to save each other's lives. You know, all things emotionally healthy. They seem to love killing off characters too, but we're going to talk about that later. And I'm talking about this here because I have a bit of a challenge for myself for the next eight seasons. Because the thing is, like, there are times where I'm like, ugh, this episode really bothers me. And I, I really can't quite put my finger on why. And then I'll go see who wrote it. And I'm like, oh, yes, this was Buck Lemming. This, this makes sense. So I think I'm, I would like to better understand what it is about their writing that annoys me and to see if I can maybe, I don't want to say change my mind, but almost like just, just to kind of see how I feel about that if I really explore that on this rewatch. Well, I would not have expected this episode, which, like I said, I kind of enjoyed to be brought to me by the same uh, powerhouse duo that gave us that um, episode. Oh my god, the racist truck. I can't believe it. Um, it also weird that I, like, know the term Buck Lemming. Like, I feel like I've heard the portmanteau used before, but never, like, made the connection that it was, like, two people's name was a portmanteau that was just a name. No, yeah, I know a lot of people think that. But no, it's Brad Buckner and Eugenie Ross Lemming. Also, the connection between Eugenie and um, who were they married to? Robert Singer? Yeah, that was unexpected as well. So much information revealed here. I mean, you know, I, I hate to claim nepotism when people are married to other people, but I feel, I feel, anyway, we'll come to our own conclusions upon rewatch. I think that this does need to be stated. Genuinely, I am intrigued, if even a little excited, to see what other episodes they give us, while I think you've set me up on a path of not to expect great things, I'll be intrigued to see what happens in these episodes to really kind of give us the sour taste that I'm sensing. But the thing <laughs> is, and I do want to be really fair, like they have like some episodes that are really good. Like, so we'll see. I, again, I I want to look more at overarching themes for for what they're writing and kind of understand my reaction to those better, basically, is what I'm trying to say. This week, we have a message from Michelle. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us at recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what is your favorite cupcake recipe? For our Roadhouse supporters, Honor and Paula Talk. Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hi, Drew and Marie. This is Michelle, pronouns she, her. And I know that by opening this can of worms, I am potentially instigating a whole separate episode to discuss it, but here goes anyway. About Leah in 99 Problems and the W word in particular. The Whore of Babylon is a metaphor described in Revelations chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, and it is about the city of Babylon, not a person. However, the translation from the Greek into the current biblical passage is a little iffy, 
because that Greek word can also mean idolatrous. And in that case, Leah totally fits. She is using her influence to turn people away from God's actual commandments, like say, thou shalt not kill or bear false witness, etc., and using that to make these people her her slaves, basically, and to you know worship her and to um, enact evil and nefarious deeds upon themselves and each other. And in this way, the word whore does kind of fit simply because she is using her her femininity and her perceived purity and holiness and and innocence as her influence, as her proof that she's, you know, a conduit or a prophet or whatever. Um, and in that way, she's actually kind of flipping the script because she's using that purity and, and innocence rather than the traditional meaning of the W word as, you know, uh, seduction and sexuality and all of that. Um, however, this is supernatural and this is, you know, based on a biblical passage and we both know how well both of those um, entities treat women. So um, I do believe that the Madonna whore complex is also at work here, which is the dichotomy of the objectification of women. In one case, the Madonna is totally, you know, pure and, you know, in need of reverence and and protection and put on a pedestal. And on the other side, you know, women are, you know, sexual objects or evil. And um, in either case, women do not have actual agency or value outside of how they're perceived by men. And um, though I do think that there may have been a bigger message about never believe anyone who has all the answers. Um, I do also think that it has to be a woman who is, you know, using her her feminine wiles to to tempt and distract and you know cause evil things. Um, so yes, the word whore is definitely, you know, an insult and and misogynistic here, but there is also a bigger meaning that doesn't necessarily mean in a sexual way. So um, I thought this was really an interesting dichotomy and also, again, still problematic. But, um, you know, I'll probably be back with more on Leah because there's a whole other side to my thoughts on her that have nothing to do with this necessarily. Uh, Anyway, love the podcast. As you know, longtime listener, and uh, I love you guys. Bye. Michelle, that was mind blowing. Honestly, like I think, I think one of the things I really, really love is when people call in with like actual information about Bible, like about the Bible and about biblical interpretations, because that's truly something that I, I have no idea about, and I do not feel comfortable going into. I tried at one point, and it just didn't go well. So I, I would really prefer to kind of not touch it, even though I know that there's probably like a well of information that we're kind of missing out on. But I'm just, I, yeah. So thank you very, very much for that. And it got me kind of, I liked when you talk about how, you know, it's kind of hard to trust or or to uh, assume positive intent, I guess, when it comes to supernatural and the Bible speaking on women. Um, And it kind of got me thinking about maybe like a a uh, conceptual triangle of like supernatural doesn't quite get the Bible, really doesn't get women, 
the Bible doesn't treat women really well and the Bible has no idea about supernatural. Like it's so it's, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of like riffing off of that. I'm, maybe I'm just tired, but I completely agree with you when you're like not quite trusting of supernatural to really have that, the interpretation that you gave us at first of, of that Bible verse for, for a lot of reasons, not, not that, you know, the people who are writing aren't well-versed in the Bible, but like, like you said, I think that the Madonna horror complex probably has a little bit more to do here. If only because of like Supernatural's history in in the way that they treat um, women as characters on on their show. So thank you so much for, for sending us this. Yeah, Michelle, thank you. I will always praise people for sending in more well understood concepts than we know. Uh, the Bible being a great example of this. So getting kind of a like more understanding look at it, I was like blown away right away. And like right away, I was like, yup, this is like my new official view on this episode. I'm calling this my way of viewing it because it gives a better light to the character and to women in general. And it actually makes more sense in my mind, honestly. We are reminded by you that, yeah, um, the Bible and the show tend to have a... um poor track record and representation of the female variety. So <clears throat> while it's hopeful thinking, I think I understand where you're coming from, but ultimately I, what I really want to focus on here with this voicemail is the interpretation, the more knowledgeable view and the ability to even present other angles because I genuinely prefer this. I think it makes more sense. And while I am willing to put money, that was not the intent of the writers. Again, that's just my opinion. I like this view better, and I prefer it from a viewing standpoint. So, as always, thank you for sharing more knowledge, for deepening my knowledge on a subject I'm not well-versed in, and making the show that much better, in my opinion. Thank you. And definitely send us that extra voicemail about Leah. So Drew, what's your reflection and call to action this week? I feel so much for Sam. Uh, I, I know you touched on it a bit as well, but there is that instinct that I, and I'm sure most humans have, where you are very quick to put yourself as the problem and think that something going on with somebody else who doesn't want to talk about it or divulge it is doing it to hide it from you specifically and... I think this episode also does a great job of reminding us that that's really not the case a lot of the time. Like, if we really got Sam to sit down and watch this episode and see Dean's, like, dreams and flashbacks, he'd be like, whoa, yeah, no, I'm the least of his effing problems. So my call to action is just to remember that if someone isn't ready to talk to me, if someone seems off and might be pushing me out, there could be a multitude of reasons that are not me and I think if you think about how often you do that to people, at least myself, it's more often yourself that's the problem and not the people around you. And that's probably true for other people around you as well, if you know what I mean. I am not always the problem. <laughs> you are not always the problem, Drew. <laughs> and you, Mary, what have you thought about this week or any reflections? 
Well, so one thing that I've learned about myself uh, lately is that I am a people pleaser and I fawn. And for those who don't know, fawning is when like when you're faced with conflict, uh, some people are going to fight, some people are going to flight and some people are going to freeze. And uh, fawning is like the fourth reaction to conflict. And it's basically when you're trying to like appease the person in front of you. And it, often it means like minimizing your own feelings. And the issue that this is sort of like creating in my life is that people don't know when I'm mad or when I get my feelings hurt because I don't tell them. And so I feel called to follow Sam's advice here. And um, the advice being the stuff that you don't talk about doesn't just go away. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigurou, and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Michelle for her message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a Coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on, Arrayward friends. The one that I always run to is the easiest one in here. It's a one bowl chocolate cupcake recipe. And then Do I not pair... tempt me. <laughs> and then I pair it with like whatever uh icing i want to make um and these are called one bowl chocolate cupcakes that's it and honestly they're amazing and i've made them as cupcakes and as cakes and every time they're delicious um, yeah what i so i'm having a moment here where like i know i'm not the most traditional baker and i can kind of cut corners quite often and just especially in the realm of minimizing the amount of dishes I have to clean afterwards. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Aren't most cupcakes one bowl recipes? Not always. Nope. <laughs>